This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, March 23rd, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. The welfare state as practiced in the United States, according to columnist George Will, means everyone just agreeing that we're not going to pay for the welfare state. At the Cato Institute's Naples Policy Perspectives, Will laid out the various prices we pay for government protection, some less obvious than others. Ladies and gentlemen, the temperature of American politics today is high because the stakes are very high. We're arguing about the proper scope and actual competence of government. We're arguing about the relative place, way to stress the two great values of Western political thought, freedom and equality. Uh, There's a lot of talk about the discord in America, and Lord knows that's real enough, but what worries me most is a consensus. It's bipartisan, it's as broad as the Republic and deep as the Grand Canyon, and the consensus is that we should have a large, ever more generous welfare state and not pay for it. Everyone's agreed on that. (laughs) This, I'm I'm sorry to have to say, this is a, a decadence of our democracy. We used to borrow money for the future. We fought wars for the future. We built roads and airports and harbors for the future. Now we're borrowing from the future, from the unborn and hence unconsenting bond redeemers in the future, in order to finance our own current consumption of government goods and services. I'll give you two data points, just to tell you where we are. 1917, on the eve of the First World War when federal spending exploded, the richest man in America, John D. Rockefeller, could have written a personal check for his net worth and retired the national debt. Today, the richest man in America, Jeff Bezos, could write a check for his entire net worth and not pay two months interest on the national debt. (laughs) Ernest Hemingway has one of these characters in the novel, The Sun Also Rises. He's asked, how did you go bankrupt? He said, I went bankrupt two ways, gradually and then suddenly. We have agreed in Washington not to talk about the national debt. Mr. Trump talked in his State of the Union for an hour and 40 minutes. He talked 6,000 words, and it was the first State of the Union address in 36 years, not to mention the national debt. We've just all decided not to think about it. Now, we've all decided that, well, it's so far so good, we're getting away with it, piling up this kind of debt, and it reminds me as everything does of a baseball story. Warren Spahn in 1951, on the way to becoming the winningest left-handed pitcher in the history of baseball, was pitching for the then Boston Braves against the then New York Giants and the then Polo Grounds. And the Giants sent up to the plate a rookie who was 0 for 12. It was clear this kid would never hit big league pitching. It was a kid named Willie Mays. Spawn stands on the mound, 60 feet, 6 inches from home plate, throws the ball, Mace crushes it. First hit, first home run. After the game, the sports writers went up to the Spawn in the club. I said, Spawny, what happened? Spawn said, for the first 60 feet, that was a hell of a pitch. <laughs> not good enough in baseball, not good enough in government. I want to take take you on a brief tour of the horizon dealing with the entitlement state we have, the effect of it on the economy, and particularly with reference to medicine, because medicine is going to drive the federal budget for the future. 
We are in a dash for growth right now. If we do not get back to 3% growth as an American norm, we cannot begin to fund the entitlement state, the promises we've made to ourselves, and our politics will devolve into ever, ever more bitter distributional conflicts. 3%, we've been told, is now out of reach, that we're in permanent secular stagnation, that 2% growth is the new normal. Barack Obama is the first president in American history to serve two full terms and not have a single year of 3% growth. We cannot stand that. And what I, really makes me frightened is that as stagnation becomes the new norm, as people lose confidence in growth, they will opt for protectionism as a great flinch from the dynamism of a capitalist society. And if that happens, the politics will become extremely bitter. Now, I refer to the entitlement state. The federal government distributes $2.4 trillion in entitlements every year. That's 12% of GDP. That's $7,500 per person, $30,000 for the nominal family of four. 52% of those receiving that are not poor. Social Security and Medicare on its own pays the average retired couple $50,000 a year. These are middle income people. Now the problem with our welfare state is it's subsidizing two things that did not exist in 1935 when with enactment of the social security system we began to build a welfare state. Those two things are protracted retirement and competent medicine. Protracted retirement in the 20th century, the average retirement expanded from two years to almost 20 years. In 1935, retirement was a luxury of a tiny sliver of the American people. People worked until they couldn't work any longer and died shortly thereafter. This system was not built for prolonged 20-year retirements. Competent medicine is a relatively new phenomenon. In 1924, Calvin Coolidge, the last president with whom I fully agreed, <clears throat> living in the White House with access to the best medicine the country had to offer, his son, Calvin Jr., played tennis without socks. He got a blister, it got infected, and he died a lingering, agonizing death in the White House because there was almost nothing medicine could do at that point. 1941, when I was born, modern medicine was born at about that time. Penicillin came along, the sulfur drugs, antibiotics, just in time, happily, for the Second World War. But I was born in a hospital in which I'm sure this is the case, because it was true of most hospitals back then. The principal hospital expense was clean linen. This was long before MRIs and CAT scans and electron microscopes and laser surgery and all the rest of the diagnostic, therapeutic, pharmacological wonders that we now have that are almost impossible to pay for under our current system. 1965, when we passed Medicare, 40% at least of all the treatments now in use did not exist. How many people here, by the way, drive a 1935 car or watch a 1935 television set? Well, how many of you use a 1965 personal computer or cell phone? <laughs> Yet the two programs we have, Social Security, 35, Medicare, 65, were built for a world long gone. 
And if we don't figure out a way to cope with this, I don't know. How things have changed in terms of medicine. In 1900, the American people spent twice as much money on funerals as they did on medicine. In 1900, 37% of all deaths were from infectious diseases. Today it's 2%. We've gone from combating infectious diseases to managing chronic ailments. About 40% of Medicare recipients are living with three or more chronic ailments, any one of which would have killed them before modern pharmacology. Now, I'm, 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 I'm not attacking the elderly, by the way. I am elderly. I remember what, 11 years ago now, the government sent me this uh, Medicare card. Very pretty. I showed it to my doctor, says, that's wonderful, George, and now we'll send your bills to your children. <laughs> Which is how the welfare state works. Social Security, by the way, uh, since 2010, has had a negative cash flow. It's sending out more in benefits and it's taking in, in money. According to the Social Security trustees, it will be out of money and a 23% cut in benefits, which Congress will never allow to happen, would have to occur. So we're going to either raise, we're going to raise taxes or pour general funds into Social Security. I mean, this is part of the general mismanagement of the welfare state. And the fact is, the elderly vote more than other people, so the elderly uh, do so because the welfare state is more important to them than to other people. And therefore, we're going to have this huge crunch coming as we try and deal with the aging of our population. If I say to you, Pittsburgh, you think steel, Pittsburgh Steelers. No, no, they don't make any steel in Pittsburgh. Largest employer in Pittsburgh is the University of Pittsburgh because of the medical center. Largest employer in Cleveland, Rust Belt Manufacturing City. Largest employer in Cleveland is the Cleveland Clinic. Next largest employer is another healthcare provider. Six of the 10 largest employers in the industrial state of Ohio are healthcare providers. Houston, energy capital of the country, well, maybe, but much the largest employer. In Houston is the Texas Hospital Center. This is our future. And, and like so many of America's problems, they're problems of success. Longevity is a tremendous social achievement. Life expectancy has increased 50% since 1950, nine years since we passed Medicare in 1965. This is a tremendous adventure, a wonderful thing, but very difficult. So there's going to be constant pressure to raise taxes. Constant pressure. It makes you remember what Will Rogers said. He said, the difference between death and taxes is that death doesn't get worse every time Congress meets. <laughs> I have a modest proposal. Everyone who's handed a ballot, remember when you used to have paper ballots? instead of those fun things you had up in Broward County in 2000, but anyway. <laughs> anyone handed a paper ballot should have stapled to it a graph with a rising line 
and a declining line. The rising line would show more and more Americans dependent for more and more things on the government. The declining line would show declining participation in the income tax. You probably know the basic numbers. The top 1% of American earners pay 39% of the income tax. Top 5% pay 60%. Top 10% pay 70%. But the social dynamite is in this. The bottom 50% of earners pay 3% of the income tax. 60% of American households pay either no income tax, that's about 49%, or less than 5% of their income. What that means is a large and growing American majority has no incentive to restrain the growth of the government that they're not paying for with the primary mechanism, the income tax. That's what economists call a situation of moral hazard, one in which the incentives are for perverse behavior. And Lord knows we're getting it. Happily, we're making some progress. The corporate tax rate, which should be zero, because corporations don't pay taxes, they collect taxes, has been cut. The estate tax is being marginalized. Still, our tax code looks increasingly like codified envy. And envy is, strictly speaking, un-American. We're not an envious people, we're an aspirational people. We want the pie to grow. That's why we're the only developed industrial nation in the world that's never had a large, successful redistributionist socialist party. It's also the case that envy is not fun. Ever strike you, as it did me, that envy is the only one of the seven deadly sins that didn't give the sinner even momentary pleasure? <laughs> Nervous laughter. Yes. <clears throat> I'll pause while you go down the list. <laughs> now, Mark Twain could be a great scourge of the rich. He gave the name to the Gilded Age. But one of his best friends was a hugely successful executive of Standard Oil, which was the great Satan of its day. And a journalist once went up to Twain and said, Mr. Twain, don't you think your friend's wealth is tainted? Twain said, you're damn right, it's doubly tainted. It taint yours and it taint mine. <clears throat> How did death, by the way, become a taxable event in this country anyway? It's none of the government's business. 1980, the Philadelphia Phillies won the World Series, and after the last game, the all went into the sports writers, went in the clubhouse to talk to the Phillies' madcap relief pitcher, Tug McGraw. They said, Tug, what are you going to do with your World Series earnings? He says, I'm going to spend 90% on wine and women, and I'll probably waste the rest. <laughs> <clears throat> well, it makes you think, you know, you, you work hard in America, you make a little money, reach age 70, say, the hell with it, I'm going to Las Vegas and blow it all on wine and women. Go ahead, it's a free country. Try and give it to your children, the government steps in. What's wrong with that picture? Well, there's a lot wrong with our, our the picture in America today. But most of all, what people are complaining about, and it's going to become a hot political issue, is inequality. And it's something we're going to, again, we're going to have to deal with unless we get economic growth going. Now, what what the government does under both parties, it makes no difference, is they cut taxes and they say, we don't need to cut spending 
because growth will increase so fast because of our tax cuts. It's the magic assumption. Reminds me of one of the story of two people walking down a country road in, in America. One's an economist and the other's a normal person. And <laughs> a cloudburst starts. And the normal person says, oh, we're going to be drenched. And the economist says, no, we'll just assume a ladder, umbrella, whatever. <laughs> Fact is, we're going to have to deal with the problem of inequality, how to talk about equality. And this is where, by the way, Cato steps in. Cato knows that in America, you are, everyone should be equally free to become unequal. That's the point of a free society. It's, someone has to point out that there's things about modern life that are tremendously egalitarian. Everyone in America has the same access to the internet as Jeff Bezos. Everyone in America has the same access to antibiotics as Bill Gates. Everyone in America has access to a smartphone, which, by the way, has more computing power in your pocket than the NATO alliance had 50 years ago. So you, just as good a phone as Warren Buffett's. Actually, I've seen Warren's. He has a flip phone to this day. Probably doesn't have to place his own calls either. Frankly, 200 years ago in this country, the chief source of wealth was land. We had so much of it, we were giving it away. 100 years ago, the great source of wealth was heavy fixed capital. Think of Andrew Carnegie's steel mills or Cornelius Vanderbilt's New York Central Railroad. Today, the great source of wealth is mind, information, human capital. And there are just limits to the ability of even universal free public education to equalize the ability of individuals to add value to the economy. Besides, people have different attitudes and aptitudes. Some people want to run hedge funds. Some people want to teach kindergarten. Bless them all. But we are not out to be an egalitarian nation. It's also the case that big government, it's amazing that most of the people complaining loudly about inequality are also advocates of big government, which is itself inevitably a friend of the wealthy. It redistributes income upward. Because the more government interferes in the economy, the more its decisions allocate wealth and opportunity, the more complex it gets and opaque its levers and pulleys and processes are, the more that works to the advantage of the wealthy, the articulate, the confident, the educated, and the well-lawyered who know how to make the government work for them. There's a reason why five of the 10 richest counties per capita in the United States are in the Washington area. We have no natural resources. We don't make anything but trouble. <laughs> and yet we're getting wealthier and wealthier. Why would that be? Well. It seems to me, as I say, what worries me more than anything else right now is that if people become frightened, frightened of the external world, of the velocity of economic life today, they will flinch and they will opt for protectionism. And we will suddenly find ourselves in a world leaving us behind. I hear people talking about 
we should repatriate our supply chains. Mr. Ross, as Secretary of Commerce, used that phrase, repatriate our supply chains. Well, this is an iPhone. It says on the back in print so small, it's clearly they don't want you to read it. This is designed in California, assembled in China. It's not manufactured in China. It's assembled there from parts that come from all over the world, the United States, South Korea, Japan, Germany, Taiwan, Italy. China adds about $6 in value to this. Now, it gets sent to the United States, and in the balance of trade bookkeeping, it's counted as an import of $500 from China, nothing of the sort. Barbie dolls, you buy a Barbie doll? Costs about two dollars to be to import a Barbie doll. Thirty-five cents of that is added in China, where they assemble the Barbie doll. That's why we, that's why it's absurd to have these obsessions about our deficits with this country or another. I have a chronic and incurable trade deficit with my barber. <laughs> no, no, really. Every three weeks, I buy a haircut from him. He never buys anything from me. He has a trade deficit with Iowa. He's in Washington. Iowans never come to him to get a haircut, but he buys corn and pork products from Iowa. Somehow it works out because markets work out. And that's one of the things that the uh, Cato Institute is trying to educate the slow learners, and that's all we have in Washington, the slow learners about this. The velocity of change is America's friend, because we're good at that. It's really difficult to stop the Americans from creating wealth. We're good at that too in Washington, but they keep bursting out. 1983, Motorola invented a cell phone. It was the size of a brick. A charge lasted half an hour. A call from New York to Los Angeles for 10 minutes cost as much as you pay for a month of roaming calls throughout North America. And it cost $4,000 in 1983 dollars. That's what competition does. People say, well, we have to build these walls and protect Americans from competition from abroad because they're destroying jobs. You wanna know who's destroying American jobs? Other Americans. Uber's destroying jobs, and aren't we glad? I'd rather have Uber than most of the taxi services. Netflix, ask the people at the Metroplex if Netflix is destroying some American jobs. Uber's based in California, as is Netflix. Amazon, remember Borders? Not anymore. Sears is about to go the way, perhaps. Macy's also. That's called the dynamism and churning of a market economy. And unless voices like Cato's, supported by people like you, keep making the case for markets, rather than politics, to allocate wealth and opportunity in a free society, unless people like you, supporting people like Cato, making the case for the spontaneous order of a market society, a society of individualism, 
we are in terrible shape. George Will is a nationally syndicated columnist. He spoke at the Cato Institute's Policy Perspectives in Naples, Florida in January. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 